Welcome aboard on Consider Everything. I'm your host, Brig Haynes, and let's go explore today to improve our mental health tomorrow. Welcome to the research episode, where we get to extract some brains. No artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? No, no extracting of the brains here, but... What we are going to be doing is diving a little bit into some of the questions we're going to be asking our guests next week, as well as getting to know our guest. And our guest is Wesley Hill. She is a child, adolescent, and young adult psychiatrist at Utah State University. She received her medical degree from South Florida College of Medicine. She finished her residency and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at the University of Florida, and she currently works with young people to diagnose and treat their mental illness. She serves as a mentor to any USU student out there that wants to pursue a career in what she does. And she's also an advocate for the LGBTQ community. I thought we'd focus in a little bit on that last point there. Because the LGBTQ community, their studies show that they're the youth of this community are at a much higher risk of developing a mental illness. And why is this? Well, the research shows that a lot of times they are bullied in school. They are misunderstood. Um, a lot of times the teachings within classes and stuff and just within the society are more than likely often to be heterosexual teachings. And so they don't feel like they're a part of the group or a part of this community. And oftentimes what causes mental illnesses is trauma. So being bullied and feeling alone. So they're not part of the group. So they're much more at a higher, they're more susceptible to developing a mental illness. But I also wanted to ask Wesley this because she is an advocate, and I'm sure she's worked with youth that are part of this community, so I want to see what her point of view is. And we'll see nowadays, especially with this community, there's there's two very polarized ideas now nowadays. There's the, the LGBTQ plus movement that's going on where people are pushing that to make sure that they are represented. Then there's the other side where they want to protect the old ways and they don't want this new group coming in and just ruining everything is how they see it. So you see these two groups fighting a lot and I haven't really ever seen a middle ground. But I did find this really cool group. They're called Gay Against, Gays Against Groomers. And I don't know, I, I, again, I'm not part of the, the LGBTQ plus community, so I'm not speaking for them. But I was trying to figure out if, if, they, if they're so polarized, I never really got a good idea of what actually represents the LGBTQ plus community. Because like the right side where they're, they're very much wanting to keep the ways the same, they'll make really awful videos of the people over here and vice versa. So I never really got a good view of who they actually are. And I thought this group, Gays Against Groomers, might be where they are represented the most. So I'm just going to read a little bit about this. I'll bring it up within the interview as well. I just want to get her point of view because maybe this is how they actually are or maybe there's a different way that they're they're represented. I just want to get her point of view on this. So Gays Against Groomers is a 501c4 organization of gay people who oppose the recent trend of indoctrinating, sexualizing, and medicalizing children under the guise of LGBTQIA+. A community that once preached love and acceptance of others has been hijacked by radical activists who are now pushing extreme concepts onto society, specifically targeting children in recent years. The overwhelming majority of gay people are against what the community has transformed into, and we do not accept a political movement pushing their agenda in our name. Gays Against Groomers directly opposes the sexualization and indoctrination of children. This includes drag queen story hours, drag shows involving children, the transitioning and medicalization of minors, and gender theory being taught in the classroom. The activists, backed by school boards, government, woke media, and corporations, have been speaking on our behalf for too long. When fighting for equality, our goal was to successfully integrate ourselves into society, but now these radicals aim to restructure it entirely in order to accommodate a fringe minority. 
as well as to seek to indoctrinate children into their own ideology. There are millions of gays within the community that want nothing to do with this alphabet religion, and joining the fight with parents and concerned people everywhere to protect their children. We also aim to return sanity and reclaim the community we once called our own. The gay community is not a monolith. Those pushing this agenda do not represent or speak on our behalf, nor do we want to be associated with them in any way. What we are witnessing is mass-scale child abuse being perpetrated on an entire generation and will no longer sit back and watch it happen. It is going to take those of us within the community to finally put an end, in, and to, put an end to this insanity. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So I thought it would be interesting to bring this up with Wesley just to get her point of view of what actually represents the LGBTQ plus community and if that's the case, is it actually true that they are at a much higher risk of developing a mental illness due to the trauma and also you know, the, the loneliness that comes with it. And now we're going to move more over to the research side of things. So I don't know if you guys listened to my episode with Darren Elkins, but he is the clinical operations director for Blumquist Hale. And I was asking him a few questions about medication, and one thing he brought up was medication should only really be used for when somebody is so deep in a rut that they need something just to get them out, right? So medication is more for just a boost, and then after that, that's when they can start going on their own. It's kind of like the crutch, right? So if you have like a broken leg, it's, you know, get the bone back in place, and let's use the crutch, but then sooner or later, it's got to come off. That's how medication should work. But, and also in that episode, he was saying that he's not... He's not a specialist in medication, so that's what he knows, but he he wasn't advocating that, that that's how it should be for every person. And I want to get Wesley's point of view on this as well, is what actually, you know, what is the actual case? Is medication only supposed to be like that, or are there multiple circumstances for whatever the situation is? And the next thing we're going to be asking is... Should life, should medications be a lifelong thing, right? So like I was talking to, or saying about with, with, with Darren, should medication be a lifelong thing? And I found that through research that I've done that most medication should not be something that's lifelong except for bipolar, for bipolar as well as schizophrenia. And I know that a lot of, you know, YouTube videos and stuff that I've seen, a lot of them only talk about medication should be lifelong for bipolar and schizophrenia but again i'm no expert and that's why we're going to be asking wesley hill and the, and the research that i've done shows that but we want to ask her to make sure that that's correct and a lot of people nowadays from, from the research i've sh i've looked at as well shows that many people feel uninformed and in the dark when it comes to knowing what medication is like for mental illness and a lot of parents actually are scared of giving their kids medication because of this reason. You know, there, there's medication can either be shown in a really good light or really bad light. And recently, I would say it's been shown in a really bad light. And this is what's causing a lot of parents to be afraid to give their kids medication. And there was a study done on a, a group of parents where they brought them in. They asked them, how, how likely would you recommend giving medication to you know, your children if they're struggling with mental illness? And they're like, well... I would never recommend that. About 50% of them said they would never recommend that. And they asked, well, why? They said, well, we're kind of in the blue. We're kind of in the dark about this. We don't know much about medication. We just know they're giving us a pill and that's about it. And they do also think that psychiatrists are just handing this out like candy when they should be focusing on the main problem because they don't, you know, they think the psychiatrists aren't actually putting in the work to make sure that the kids are going to be well off for the rest of their life. They're just more worried about the short term making them feel better for now. And they also, there was another study done that I looked at that showed a lot of family doctors, because you know, a lot of family doctors can prescribe medication now, 
they, a lot of them feel that they don't, they aren't in the know with it. So they don't understand the side effects of the medication. They don't understand how it's made. And so they, 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 like, I think it was 50% of them said that they don't know if they should be handing this out to people or not. And also they did the same thing with caretakers. So people that are taking care of elderly, elderly people. They also said that they feel like they're not in the know and they don't know what could happen if they give this medication to that person. So when it comes to these kind of things, I wonder, I want to ask Wesley this is why are, why, if this is the case, why are family doctors and also caretakers, the main prescribers of these things when it should be, you know, we should have somebody who knows about these medications. They should be the one prescribing it, making sure that what they're seeing and what, what characteristics a person is showing, does that match up with a certain medication that should be prescribed? And, and I, that really it kind of affected me too, because I remember when I was, this is a personal experience, but when I was, you know, trying to figure out what, how to start curing my mental illness that I was going through, I would go to certain doctors and it just seemed like it was a trial and error kind of thing. You know, they would give me one medication. It wasn't really working. So like, okay, we'll try this. Okay. Well, that's not working. So try this. And it just seemed like I was getting thrown over all over the place. Again, that's a personal experience. I can't say that speaks for everybody, but I want to get her a point of view on this because looking at it, I don't think family doctors or caretakers should be the ones handing out this medication. It should be the ones that know about the medication and also know what characteristics go coincide with that medication. And also, it was really interesting. I found this really cool, interesting article that showed that medication and cognitive behavioral therapy pretty much show the same results. So what they did is there was a four-month study done on, I believe it was 280 subjects that you know had different ranges and different varieties of mental illnesses. The first group was a group that only received a placebo medication. So they thought they were getting medication, but they really weren't. Then there was another group that was the medication where they were getting what they needed, but there wasn't anything else that came with it. Then there was the cognitive behavioral therapy where these people received therapy every day. Then the medication people received uh, you know, their prescription every day and the placebo people received their medication every day, even though it wasn't really a medication, it was just a sugar pill. And what they found in the study is that 25% of those taking the placebo medication found that, or found that there was some kind of improvement in their mental illness, which I found interesting because nothing changed, but they thought that it was changing for them. And then there's the middle group where it's the medication, and they said that they saw about 50% said that they saw some kind of improvement in their, med- in their, in their mental illness. And then there's the last group where they were the, the therapy group, where they went to therapy every day, and they also found about 50%. So looking at this, you know, just from the study, you know, it looks like it's about a 50-50 toss-up when it comes to how effective medication and, and cognitive behavioral therapy is for somebody. The only flaw I can see with this medication or this, this study, though, is it was only done for four months. And again, somebody who struggles with mental illness myself, I don't see four months being long enough to really describe or show the effects of a certain medication, right? I think it should be more of like a year at least because think about it, somebody who goes through trauma or somebody who's who, who deals with some kind of mental illness, it shouldn't be four months. That's a really small amount of time compared to how long they've been dealing with it most of the time. So again, it could match up for some people, but I don't know how valid this this source act, or how valid this re- piece of research actually is due to the fact that it's only done for four months. So I'll bring that up with Wesley and she'll be able to help us understand a little bit more if four months was really 
a good amount of time and if that's that study really has some validity to it now we're going to kind of move into actually understanding medication itself because we've learned what the, the side effects are what people say about it but i want to actually talk about medication itself and before i do that I want to let you guys know I am going to link all my resources into the, ep- the description of this episode. So please go there if you have any questions. And yeah, that way you can also kind of prepare yourself as well before we get into the interview for next week. So there's three types of mental health medication. There's there's a lot, but these are like the three main ones that are like, they're like the big daddies, the big daddies up above. There's SSRIs, there's SNRIs, and NDRIs. There's a lot of eyes going on. But SSRI means Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. So that solely focuses on serotonin. Just to give you guys a little background, if you don't know, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine are really what are the, if we're looking at what chemically what's going wrong with somebody who has a mental illness, it's usually going to be some kind of lack within those three areas. It could be, you know, between multiple of those areas or just one, right? So they could be lacking serotonin, they could be lacking norepinephrine, or they could be lacking dopamine, or they could be lacking any of those three, a combination of those three. So these solely focus on that because what we've seen so far in the research we've done, those three things are what causes, like physically causes a mental illness. Is a lack in one of those things. So the ser- the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, this so that then the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors and the norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors. What these do is you you think <laughs> with the most medications you're thinking oh well they probably just insert norepinephrine in your blood or dopamine or serotonin right into your bloodstream. This is not how they work. Sadly, how it actually works is it basically uses what you have and uses it to the best of its ability i i I don't i don't feel comfortable trying to explain it even more because again i'm not a mental health expert i've done a little research myself but that's how i see it is that from just to giving it a broad idea of what it actually is what these do is they just use you know serotonin to the best of its ability or they use norepinephrine to the best of its ability and actually a personal experience as well, you know, talking about the family doctors and stuff and me getting tossed around between the different medications. I wonder if if they're really able to know if somebody's struggling with just a serotonin problem or a norepinephrine problem or a dopamine problem. Is there any way that they can tell that, hey, we need to get them, we need to improve their serotonin levels or we need to improve their norepinephrine, level, norepinephrine levels or their dopamine levels or a mixture of both? Just because when I was going through that, it just seemed like I was getting tossed around. And so it didn't really seem like they were know what they know. They didn't seem like they knew what they were doing. At least my family doctor, when I was going through this. So I wonder if maybe psychiatrists can pinpoint this, but family doctors can't. So guys, that's what I have for us today. And I hope you enjoy the interview episode for next week. Don't forget to check out those sources so you can kind of prepare yourselves for the interview. Goodbye, Ann. I have enjoyed parts of our time together. (gasps) Oh, God, Ron. (laughs) That was really something.